If you like what you're hearing on the Security Ledger podcast, consider subscribing to one of our newsletters like The Daily Ledger or The Weekly Ledger. You can learn more and sign up at securityledger.com slash subscribe. This is the Security Ledger podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, the editor-in-chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's podcast episode number 148. I really don't think it's an ambition issue. I think it is a support issue. At different points in time, as people climb through their career ladder, are we creating the right environment for them to stay? It's common knowledge that the information security field has a pipeline problem with too few information security workers and too little diversity in the information workers who are in the pipeline. But if we look deeper, is the problem that the pipeline is empty or that it's sprung a leak? Sam King, the chief executive officer of the firm Vericode, joins us in our second segment to talk about it. But first, Joseph Men's new book on the seminal hacking group Cult of the Dead Cow was already making headlines months before its release when Men, a reporter at Reuters, broke the news that presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke has been a long-standing member of the group. That scoop helped propel Men's book to become the top-selling cybersecurity title on Amazon even before it was released. With the book's release finally here this week, we're reprising an interview we did with Joe back in March. In our first segment, Joe and I talk about the origins of Cult of the Dead Cow back in the 1980s and 90s and about the group's growth and development in the decades since. I'm Joseph Men. I'm an investigative technology reporter for Reuters and author. The title of your new book, Joseph Men, is Cult of the Dead Cow, How the Original Hacking Supergroup Might Just Save the World. For listeners who may not be familiar with Cult of the Dead Cow, could you just tell us a little bit about who this group was and, and also, I guess, how you got interested in them as a subject to, of a book? Yeah, absolutely. So Cult of the Dead Cow is probably the oldest, and there's like a geek argument about this right now, but probably the oldest surviving hacking group in the United States. Uh, So they were founded, depending on your source, in 84 or 86, um, when it was text files on bulletin boards. And so these various people in, you know, uh, starting in Lubbock, Texas, um, had a, uh, had they each had bulletin boards, and this is the very early, early days of modems, 300 baud modems, uh, incredibly slow connections, um, and you know the gathering place uh, in those days online were on bulletin boards, and there were bulletin boards. A lot of them were about computing, some of them were about you know ho- other hobbies, some were about politics, whatever. Um, and but it was it was a pain in the butt if you didn't have like an academic, uh, you know, a university way to get on uh, the, inter- the early internet um, or some giant tech corporation you work for then then you know you had to use an acoustic coupler mm-hmm. a modem mm-hmm. super cumbersome super slow but the object was to get to these bulletin boards and find sort of people like you that you could talk to and it was asynchronous so you would leave a message and other people would see it later and there were some like you know postings that stayed uh in mostly uh text files uh or ascii art i, I would i would i suppose too um, and then they're also like pirated, you know, Apple games and that sort of thing, which, you know, there were boards devoted to that sort of thing. And that was the roots of this group. Uh, it was a bunch of different bulletin board sysop. And then 
you know, a couple of flukes of evolution, they wound up becoming much, much more important like 10 years later. What happened was, you know, they they were funny <laughs> and they collected these text files. They numbered these text files and they sent them out and they covered a lot of topics. Most of them were not technical. Some of them made fun of like the more sophisticated hackers in groups like Legion of Doom and uh, Masters of Deception. You know, the guys who who were doing sort of more criminal suspect stuff like breaking into at t and that sort of thing. You know, some of the, the kids and they were kids in the Cult of the Dead Cow looked up to those guys and envied them, but also sort of like mocked them for their sort of eliteness or whatever. The other guys got broken up and arrested in some celebrated cases that, among other things, spawned the Electronic Frontier Foundation mm -hmm. and sort of broader awareness of what hackers could do. But the Cult of the Dead Cow survived because it was more of like a social club for, for hackers. And they were like, they were Switzerland on MOD versus LOD and various <laughs> other sort of uh, in international hacker warfare. They're where like the, these guys went out and blew off steam. One of them founded HohoCon, uh, originally known yeah. as XmasCon, which was one of the first hacker cons. And Jeff Moss was one of the people who went to one of those. And Jeff Moss founded DefCon um, and Black Hat later. So the hacker con scene belongs to Cult of Dead Cows in a lot of ways. There were there were some earlier ones, Summer Con, but HoHoCon was the first that had law enforcement openly attending and journalists uh, attending, as opposed to just a bunch of teenagers getting drunk and telling war stories. They were admired within the hacking scene. They were funny. They were sort of like a social like lightning rod or whatever. And as a result, people who were serious hackers you know, wanted to join and sort of got brought in. And that's where you had early overlap with the loft there in Boston. Eventually, four members of the loft were also in CDC. The most celebrated um, of them include, technically include Mudge. Pete Zydko, yep. Yeah, you're right. Uh, Peter Zatko, who went on to run DARPA's cyber program uh, and then do secret projects at, uh, at Google. And uh, Chris Rue, uh, alias Dildog, um, who founded Veracode with the lost Chris uh, Weisobel. You know, technically, super sophisticated group of people. Cult of the Dead Cow is really almost like a network of different BBSs maintained by, by group members. Um, how did they sort of coordinate? So that's true. Uh, they all had their own bulletin boards, and they, but it was, and they all communicated actually on a secret part of the founder's uh, home bulletin board. Uh, Demon Roach Underground was the name of it. And there was a there was a secret part of it that only that only they would have access to, and they would talk about stuff. I guess it's already out in the story. So the the founders, Kevin Wheeler, and uh, on stage he was Grandmaster Rate, amazing stage presence, but in his real life is actually quite you know reclusive. So the way the bulletin boards work is they would basically all publish Cult of the Dead Cow text files, which were numbered, and then they would also package them up and distribute them to lots of other uh, bulletin boards. So in Boston, uh, the works uh, would be one place where you would read uh, CDC files, uh, but they're 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 all over the place. And there really wasn't a good way to join. If you're interested, you would probably write a text file of your own, and maybe they'd publish it. Uh, it wasn't just members that wrote text files for them. And if you wrote a few of them and they liked you, they might sort of tap you on the shoulder and say, okay, you could, you could join. But one of the rules after the earliest years was that anybody who asked to join could not join. <laughs> They call that the, Gr the Groucho Marx rule, I right. guess. Yeah. yeah. So despite the fact that the thing is still going after more than 30 years, they only ever had 50 members or so. 
So when I think back to the sort of the hacking scene, such as it was in the 80s or 90s, I mean, I think about groups of you know mostly teenage men, young men, you know, dumpster diving and trying to kind of get information about you know companies and using that to gain access to their you know internal network. It's almost kind of like the war games type scenario. Was Cult of the Dead Cow doing that type of stuff? Were they doing the dumpster diving? Were they doing the recon or the social engineering, a la Kevin Mitnick? Yeah to gain access. Was that part of their MO? It's a diverse group. Um, and that's one of the things that makes it really interesting. I mean, in my view, like more interesting to write a book about than The Loft. The Loft was presentable. I mean, they could get invited to testify to Congress, as they did famously in 98. And then they turned pro with at stake, right? So they have Microsoft as a customer. The CDC had some of the same people, but was like, you know, the dark side of the same drive. It was a very interesting media play, among other things, where if the loft couldn't get you to take security seriously by publishing advisories, then, you know, meet my unkempt cousin CDC, who is going to like put on a costume and, you know, throw raw meat, literally raw meat into the audience (laughs) at DEF CON and throw out CDs that have Trojan programs. They're going to take advantage of, of your core architect. That was a very, that was a really savvy dynamic. And it actually wound up, while controversial and not without victims, actually drove security a lot. I think the good good cop, bad cop analogy is a, is a very fitting one. So you'd kind of chart the evolution of this group from really more of a social organization with a, with a lot of focus on sort of writing and publishing and music to one by the late 90s are, are publishing, you know, Black Orifice, a, you know, very powerful Windows hacking tool that that got a lot of people, particularly in Microsoft world, very uh, scared. Um, so I guess talk about how that evolution happened. The shift to the, the, the broad web in 95 basically wiped out the bulletin boards. The CDC text file survived because they're members of the loft and the loft had one of the very earliest websites, as you can imagine. And so they, you know, they put all this, they kept all the CDC files online. And then when it became like a bigger cultural phenomenon or when anything did, when like, you know, all these reporters started covering the internet and covering tech, you know, you looked around and, and CDC seemed to be emblematic of not just hacker culture, but internet culture. And they could explain it. Mm-hmm. And unlike many other hacker groups, CDC loved the media. CDC self-promoted. You know, they were like, yeah, hey, we're hackers. We'll explain stuff for you. And what was funny is that they would sort of meet the reporter wherever they were. So if, the, if you had a serious tech-savvy journalist who wanted to explain a security issue, they would explain it seriously. And if you had some TV reporter without a lot of experience who was looking, doing like a quick hit on like, you know, what are these hackers all about? They're, they would sometimes have fun. And they're like, you know, oh, yeah, we can hack satellites and we can hack moving trains. And, you know, we're coming for you. We're coming for your children. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was part of hacker culture and it was fun. But then once they got all that attention, then, you know, reporters was like, oh, would Google like what are hacking groups? And they come across them again. So they kept getting mm-hmm. interviewed on TV over and over again. One of the really valuable thing about hackers is they are, tend to be critical thinkers, right? They're not just doing what the program tells them to do. They're trying to figure out how to trick the program into doing something else. And that expands not sh- from technical stuff to media and mm-hmm. society uh, and becomes really a broader issue of how can you, how can you hack other things. And Mudge mm-hmm. and the others were interested in how you manipulate slash hack the media how you get a message across. And I think it was it was really for a defensible and, and important social purpose, which was that the incredible um, risk of running 
software, you know, sorry, Windows with TCP IP and no real security built in, wasn't getting across to the public. I mean, it was being marketed as something that you're, this is great and your grandma can get online. Nobody had a financial interest in telling grandma that she was also at risk. So they thought, are there different ways of getting this message out there? And the bad cop CDC antics that create a media circus was actually a pretty effective way to do that. That kind of brings it back to, to Beto. And, you know, he told me that he thinks this, this is really valuable. This sort of perspective is very valuable. If you think our government is doing great and it's accomplishing everything it needs to do, then maybe you don't need somebody who thinks outside the system. But it seems to me, ir- almost irrespective of politics, people are, are, are not really thrilled uh, with Washington right now. And it's kind of an, a moment for outsiders. Uh, President Trump is an outsider. There are many people elected in 2018 who, are, who had never been in politics before, from the left, from the right, whatever. And I, th- I think that hacking perspective, you see why that kind of perspective would actually be pretty appealing. At the time that Beto was a part of the group, what would have been the ethos of CDC? At- in that era, very early again, um, Many of them were not actually breaking into computers. They were um, almost all of them stealing long-distance service, uh, which in those days was actually a substantial amount of money. On the other hand, almost everybody was under 18 when they were doing this. There were a couple of members that got stern talkings to that had their computers taken away, and some of them like quit hacking after that. It was not the breaking into big companies era. The stealing long distance, that was really just a practical concern, which is you needed to dial into these BBSs that might be all over the country. And so therefore you needed to use long distance connections to do it. Is that is that right? That's right. You know, one of the reasons I picked CDC to write about is that I'm very interested in the ethics of, of security work, the ethics of hacking, and it's gotten really, really complicated, right? I mean, you don't, you, you make something and You've got some moral responsibility to see whether there's a hole in it or not, but that might not be what the the sales guys care about. It might not be what the shareholders care about. Um, And then you've got things, you know, do you do business with China? Do you do business with the NSA? What happens when somebody asks for advance notice of a security flaw? There are a lot of really important ethical questions. And I think that, you know, kids who are getting into hacking today, 14, 15 a lot of them, I think, that don't know the history or think that, well, their career options are basically, you know, go work for the NSA, um, steal Bitcoin from each other, or try and get rich in Silicon Valley, all of which, you know, are perfectly reasonable choices. But I want them to think a little bit about the implications of what they do, because it's not just security work. As we've seen in the last year or so, Google, Facebook, all of these giant companies, Apple, are having to make really important philosophical calls. And there's just now starting to be demand for like in-house ethicists and, you know, philosophy professors. So I was using CDC because you can track the moral development of the people in it. And they wound up with making different calls about different things, but they were all debating it uh, and trying to get it right. How much long distance service is it acceptable to steal? How much harm am I really causing? Should I actually try to right. sp- spread it out so that it's not just one person whose card I'm ripping off, but more people getting ripped off a little? And then when you get into blue boxes, red boxes, and other ways of stealing service, there's some guys in the book that say, well, okay, I'm going to sell these blue boxes that allow others to rip off phone companies, but I'm not going to sell to drug dealers who really wanted it. And I'm going to reinvest all my profits to do more R&D, you know, and I'm not going to try and like make a living by selling blue boxes. But what's interesting is these guys, you can trace their history and see 
than making moral calls for smaller stakes like that. And then in 10 years, they're, they're making calls about mass surveillance and cyber warfare. And you can understand which calls they made uh, if you understand where they came from. That's a really fascinating point. What is going on with Cult of the Dead Cow now? It's still around, but um, what, is it, what is its function and, and what is the group up to? Well, I'm afraid uh, I've already given away a fair amount. And if, if you want to know all that stuff, then you're, you're just going to have to buy the book. Darn you. Darn you, Joseph Men. Joseph Men of Reuters and the author of Cult of the Dead Cow, How the Original Hacking Supergroup Might Just Save the World. Thank you so much for coming in and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. You bet. Thanks for having me. Up next, it's common knowledge that there are too few information security workers to meet the needs of our economy or indeed the global economy, where the shortage of cybersecurity professionals numbers in the millions. Furthermore, of the information security workers who are out there to hire, there is an acute lack of diversity. Just 20% of information security professionals globally are women, and racial and ethnic diversity continues to be a challenge. But if we look deeper, is the problem that the cybersecurity pipeline of talent is empty, or has the pipeline merely sprung a leak? Sam King, the chief executive officer at the security firm Vericode, worries that it may be the latter, as women in information security drop out of the workforce due to a lack of support within their companies. In this interview recorded at the 2019 RSA conference in San Francisco, King and I talk about her own journey to the corner office and how empathy may be the missing ingredient for many corporations anxious to hire and hold on to talent. Okay, everybody, welcome back to Vericode Live. I'm Paul Roberts. I'm the editor-in-chief at the Security Ledger, and we're doing a great series of interviews today here in the Vericode booth. And I've got one of the highlights of our agenda all day, Sam King, who's the CEO of Vericode. Sam, welcome to Vericode Live. Thank you, and thank you for doing all these great interviews for us. I appreciate it. You're kind of the person to talk to, uh, CEO of Vericode. So one of the things you and Chris are going to talk about this afternoon is this idea of security, not as a cost center, which is kind of historically how it's been thought about, like, you know, security is just what you have to do to you know, either make your regulator happy or your customers, you know, not angry at you. But really looking at it as security as a, not a feature, but as an enhancer both of sales value and also customer relationships, kind of trust with your customer. Just talk about that and I guess how do you make that mental shift happen within companies that might not be used to thinking about it that way? Yeah, I think what's changed for me in the last couple of years is that this talk track around security being a competitive advantage has existed for quite some time in the industry, frankly, right? Mm -hmm. This is not the first year that you find people saying. What's different for me is that what we were talking about earlier, right? If what people are using to compete in today's modern world is software and the source of their competition, right, the vehicle that they use to compete has vulnerabilities in it, they're not going to be as competitive, right? So the fact that software is what's providing them competitive edge means that that software better be secure. Otherwise, that competitive edge can turn into a liability. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's that connection between how software is being used and the consequences of that software not being secure is what bringing this topic of security as a competitive advantage back to the table. 
And you talk a lot about building trust with the customer. Absolutely, right? I mean, one of the things that we will talk about this afternoon is this concept of champions, building champions inside the organization, security champions that understand development, development champions that understand security. And the underlying principle behind creating these champions is an issue of trust, right? I attended a great talk by this Harvard professor, Francis Fry, who talks about three different things that have to be in place for a leader to have trust. It's authenticity, it's logic, and it's empathy. Now, I think that as an industry... And Twitter. And Twitter. Twitter, All those things showing up on Twitter, (laughs) right? But I mean... Logic, security people, developers are very analytical, they're very logical, so I think we got that covered, right? Authenticity, you know, notwithstanding some embellished claims uh, happening at RSA, I think we're pretty genuinely honest people in in security and development. We want to do the right thing. We want to say the right thing. I think the wobble and the area to go focus on is empathy, Right? Security people want to get security done, but the developers also need to get that product out because, by the way, if that product, in our case, software that developers are producing, is holding up revenue, do you really want to be the one that's holding up revenue when in business there are two problems that any CEO has, revenue and all the other problems? Right? Right. Having that sense of empathy for the development team is important. Now, as a developer, you need to have a sense of empathy for the security person because if the auditors show up and they find that your practices are really divergent from what they require you to do or even what the industry best practices are and right. they come in and they impose a whole bunch of corrective measures or fines or whatever, well, that's going to hold you back too, right? So it's it's about mutual understanding. It's about empathy. Sure. Well, from the developer's perspective, too, you can get this dynamic where you're calling their baby ugly, right? You're giving code that they develop back to them, telling them to fix it. A person that I worked with years ago, when we had just started the company, said to me, why do you guys scan and scold? How do you think that goes over, right? Scanning and scolding is not going to win you any friends in development, right? Right. So we've certainly changed our thinking on that topic. Scanning is a means to an end. What is the end? The end is secure software. So we don't want to scan and scold. I often say, like, you know, in security, we kind of eat our own, you know? Like, there can be a lot of blaming, and there can be a lot of, like, oh, well, that bad thing happened because you failed to do X, Y, and Z that were, you know, best practice or, you know, table stakes security-wise pointing the finger of blame and saying, you know, you got what you deserve, that's not a constructive reaction either. That's not going to get you the response that you want either, right? I guess empathy is the missing piece. It kind of brings me to our next question, which is we're here at RSA. This industry and the makeup of this industry is changing. You sitting there as a female executive of an information security company, that's something that until recently you didn't see much of. Talk a little bit about, because you've been coming to RSA for a while, about how you're seeing the industry change and maybe how that is reflected just within Veracode. Yeah. So first of all, this is an area that I'm very proud of with respect to Veracode. We have more than 30% women in our employee base, which is not as many as there should be, but greater than there is in a lot of different companies, especially a lot of cybersecurity companies. And more importantly than that, we have more than 30% minorities represented in our leadership team which is, I think, an even greater achievement. So very proud of that. And in general, we have really promoted the concept of diversity and inclusion in all its form. 
not just diversity of gender or diversity of background, but diversity of thought. When we're trying to problem solve any particular topic, I want multiple viewpoints involved in there, right? Because singular thinking generally doesn't produce the best solutions. So in general, I think diversity is a topic that we've taken very seriously and very pleased with where we are with respect to Veracode. I'm glad you asked me this question because I think it is still a relevant question that needs to be asked of our industry, that needs to be asked in technology. But I will tell you, I was being interviewed by a reporter two weeks ago, and for the first time, they didn't ask me, what does it feel like to be a woman in technology? And at the end of the interview, I sat back and I actually kind of went, that's awesome. Maybe it's becoming more mainstream. Maybe that's why nobody needs to ask me what it feels like to be a woman in technology, right? And I thought, okay, that's sign of some progress. Right. But here's how I see it. One of the things that you hear everybody talk about in cybersecurity is the shortage of talent, right? It's like we have more openings than we know what to do with. We can't find people to fill these. What a great opportunity to take that problem and correlate that with this other issue of there not being adequate representation from all different walks of life in this industry and commingle those two things together right. and find ways to draw people from other sectors and other fields, including women and people of color and so on and so forth. Sure. I had a meeting yesterday with a woman leader in a state organization, a very complex state organization. She has recently come to the field of cybersecurity. And I looked up her background before the meeting her background was in public relations and communications. And she has been fabulously successful yeah. getting all this very complex state organization to start marching towards a common goal with respect to security. Right. So, you know, you don't need to have a technical background. Right. You don't need to be a man. <laughs> you can be a woman and be successful, right? You, right. Th th diversity in many different ways can come in and move this problem forward. So where does that break down? I guess... Uh, I totally agree with you. Why is the pipeline problem so persistent? I mean, I've been writing about cyber yeah. for 15, 16 yeah. years, and it's always been there in one form or another. It's very acute now, but it's always been there. You know, I have wondered if it is a pipeline problem or if it is a leakage problem. And here's what I mean by that, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I think if you tell me, do you know of the Grace Hopper Conference? Yes. Okay. So it's a conference that occurs every year. I didn't go to it last year. I went to it two years ago. There were 18,000, 18,000 wow. women and girls uh -huh. from schools and colleges that were attending a technology conference for women. So don't tell me it's a pipeline problem. Yeah. Okay. 18,000 women attended. Mm -hmm. So what happens next? Right. That's the question that I'm fixated on. What is the environment that companies create for women and for girls when they become women and they join the workforce? Right. What is the environment that they see around them? Do they see women in positions of leadership? Are they reporting to a woman? Yep. When I had my second child, I was still at Veracode. I chose to go part-time. I chose to work four days a week. Now, it's another issue that I ended up working the fifth day and the weekend to make up for the day that I wasn't saying I was working. But, you know, putting that aside, my company worked with me to allow me to go to a schedule that allowed me to continue to contribute, stay part of the workforce, right. but also tend to the greater needs on my family's right. part, right? right? 
and now I'm the CEO of Veracode. So right. I don't think it held me back to go to part-time for a year. I came back to be a full-time employee and then continued my, my career. So, right. so I think I really don't think it's a pipeline issue. I really don't think it's an ambition issue. I think it is a support issue because at different points in time, as people climb through their career ladder, are we creating the right environment for them to stay? for them to make that choice to go to the next level? Yes. Or are we causing leakage to occur there? Yes. So you just described a much more complicated problem than a pipeline problem. <laughs> you know what? That's like a structural uh, problem. <laughs> I think if you simplify the problem too much, you sometimes don't end up solving it. So yeah. let's really talk I about totally the problem I think you're right. in the way that it exists, and then maybe we'll make progress against right. it. Right. You gotta you gotta look at you gotta look at it in the face and see it for what it is. I I totally agree with you. I think you're right. It's a lot of things, right? It's a lot of different. Yeah. It's a lot yeah. of different things. And and by the way, you have to have allies in this, right? right. There are a lot of men that are, uh, my mentors have been men, have been women, but also have been men that have right. said to me, you can go do this, right? right? So it takes all of us working together. So you're here at RSA. Um, what do you, you're, you're speaking, you're presenting, That's and I'm sure right. you're doing a ton of meetings, but if you're going to go to any sessions, what sessions are you going to check out? What are you interested in seeing? So unfortunately, I don't really get to go to too many sessions because my team has me speaking with all customers <laughs> all day long, which is great, which is absolutely great. But if I could get to a session, I'd love to go to Tina Faye's session. I love her. I know. I absolutely I love know. her. I want to see what she has to say and what does she have to say on the topic of security? I mean, listen... If, if you need to apply humor to anything in the world, security is probably it, right? It's a hard problem. It's a hard problem. So I would love to go see Tina Fey talk. I would also. Maybe we should delay our flights and go. Maybe, maybe we should do that. <laughs> maybe we should do that. Sam, thank you so much. It was it's great, to, great to talk to you. Sam King is the CEO of the firm Veracode. We were talking at Veracode Live on the show floor at the recent RSA conference in San Francisco. 